Anyway, thank you very much. Um, I'll introduce myself. You probably read the stuff that Kathy was nice enough to send out. Um, my current endeavor, my last endeavor ever, is the International Museum of Dinnerware Design, which I set up in 2012 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's a museum dedicated to the dining experience as it's reflected in good design and dinnerware and then also fine art that isn't functional 3D kind of stuff, but things, uh, photographs and paintings and other stuff, most of which I'm not going to show you tonight. Tonight I fixated, this is a talk I started a couple years ago for the culinary historians of Ann Arbor, and those of you who, anybody here know Jan Longoni, who's the founder of, of our Ann Arbor group? Um, anyway, she sends her best regards to everyone. She says every time she's been here and speaking with you, she's enjoyed every moment of it, and um, anyway, she's good, Dan's good, and um, anyway, I started doing this talk for them because I talked about the Dinnerware Museum once, and, and then they said, well, what else you got? And I said, well, I got this obsession with the weird stuff and to do with dining, and so that's kind of what I'm going to show you. And I'm, I'm terrible with dates, and I'm old enough that I forget names even, so I have kind of a cheat sheet, so if I forget something when I'm showing it, I'm going to, I'm going to put my glasses on and look at it. Um, anyway, I came up with the title for Anomalies and Curiosities because back in the... Uh, I hate to say this, back in the 60s I saw a book called Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine, which was a really bizarre, big, fat, old, reproduced book from, I don't know, probably 1800-something or other that had just the most weird medical, my father was a doctor, but, and that's not where I saw the book, but anyway, it just came to me that that was a good title for dinnerware that's weird and might be outside the norm here. Um, Anyway, so you all know what an anomaly is. So basically, um, pretty much everything that's uh, not standard or not normal or not expected, so that uh, there's all kinds of things. They can, it can be rare things, that's an anomaly. And um, so I'll, I'll be showing you some rare things that aren't uh, bizarre or ugly or whatever. Um, and then my definition of dinnerware has kind of expanded since I founded the museum. We now have about 7,000 objects, and what we're looking for is someone who wants their name on a building because we are doing like what you're doing. You're expressing your desire to find a, a, an inexpensive place with parking and all that. Well, I need that for my museum, but on a permanent basis where I can take those 7,000 objects, which are currently where my husband Bill is in the back eating cheesecake, Eli's cheesecake, um, where we live, and we would like, even though we enjoy dinnerware, we don't need to have the priceless stuff where you know a cat can knock it off or something. Um, but I'm, I'm exaggerating. But anyway, dinnerware is anything that can go on a tabletop. So in my family, it included, and I'll probably show like one ashtray because my parents, who both died of smoking-related things, um, sat at the dinner table smoking the entire meal um, with ashtrays at both ends of the table and. Um, so I'm an anti-smoker, okay? But I like the paraphernalia. I don't have any children, but I like children's dinnerware. So you don't have to do the thing to enjoy it. And you'll see the weird uh, ashtray I'm going to show you anyway. So um, have you all seen this image before, you culinary historian people? So I'm going to be talking about this one soon. And this is usually one that surprises people because they, they don't know about um, this breast-shaped cup that was meant to drink milk in the uh, in the 1800s. Um, 
Anyway, so the next thing I'm going to show you is what, I have no limits on what I consider dinnerware, but in this, this ad for Pellegrino, the only thing in there probably is a napkin that has anything to do with dinnerware, and I do collect paper napkins, cloth napkins, some paper napkins, yeah, because when I was a child, I thought they were really interesting when they had like birthday greetings and bunny rabbits and stuff on them, so... Um, so pretty much there's no limit. The thing I'm limiting this talk is not talking, um, anyway, so the thing I'm not gonna talk much about is teapots, which there's billions of books on and everybody knows all the teapots. And the, there's people that collect, uh, that have like 18,000 teapots that are looking for a home for them. Um, there's big tabletop books of teapots, real, some really great ones and then just crap. Um, and then there's the book um, called Sex Pots. So if you don't know about that one, which is a book by a ceramic artist and smart guy named Paul Matu, Sex Pots, which has to do with pots that have some kind of sexual related, the, the breast cup, which you'll see again in a moment, that one's in his book, but I'm not gonna do Sex Pots tonight either. Um, either we will get to Judy Chicago probably in a few minutes. Okay, so what I wanted to do was kind of start in a, a chronological thing and then divert wherever I feel like it, where things are connected. So the earliest thing we're going to talk about to do with dinnerware um, has to do with this, the Sev factory in France, founded in 1738. It was a royal and an imperial factory, and they made beautiful pieces. This one's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, and this was actually created, excuse me, in the 1780s, the late 1780s, for the Queen's Dairy at Rambouillet, uh, so around 1787. And if any of you are like me, I think when I think of um, Marie Antoinette and all that, I think of Versailles and the Queen's Dairy there, which is spectacular. I never heard of this one until I was working on this topic. So this is the one at Rambouillet. So Marie Antoinette was married to Louis XVI, and he wasn't an altruistic kind of guy. What he wanted to do was go hunting and fishing or whatever at this place. And so he built the dairy so because pastoral playing outside was nice for queens and other wealthy people at the time who interested them. Um, so he had this dairy built for Anyway, he had 65 pieces of sev, that set that I showed the first piece, um, made for the Queen's Dairy at Rambouillet. And included in, in that set were some of these breast cups. Uh, they're called either in French the Bolsen, excuse my French. Um, it's about five and a quarter inches in diameter and five inches high. And um, I won't bore you with the name of the designer unless you want to know it later. Uh, so there were four of these made, and they were literally meant to drink milk from. So, um, and the reason these were popular, and you, and you can go see them now. There's still a couple in existence at the Musée National de Ceramique Sèvres, and there's another one in Naples. And they were supposedly molded, legend has, from the from Marie Antoinette's own breast. Now. It's probably not true, but it's a really good story that that, that uh, was what happened. And um, they're based on, here's another one, but they're based on a, a real thing that the Greeks had. And at this time, in the 1780s, the French were very interested in anything that was Greek, anything that was Roman. That was something really fascinating to them. So this Mastos cup, um, which was molded on a, the model of a, a breast, that was the model for it, um, inspired the Queen's thing. And if you're interested in this, there's a book which, ha it's a really interesting book, it has the best title for any of you who are addicted to Dairy Queen like I am. I can't pass a Dairy Queen without getting a dipped cone or something. But anyway, the book's called Dairy Queens, 
The Politics of Pastoral Architecture from Catherine de' Medici to Marie Antoinette by a woman named Meredith Martin. It's a really good book. So if you want to know more about their obsession with the pastoral life, I, I'd recommend that. But following chronologically, um, uh, Carl Lagerfeld created a design for Dom Perignon in 2008, and he actually used Claudia Schiffer's breast as a model for the Dom Perrier breast. That one's like a true story. Supposedly, Marie Antoinette not only drank milk out of the breast cup she had from 1787, but also um, champagne. So um, he updated it to put the plant. There were a 1,000 of these made. None came to the US because apparently the US has some kind of legality to do with relating alcohol to sex. That was another thing. So I learned all kinds of stuff about this. So then there was a woman who did an internship at SEV uh, named Antoine Boidin. I'm mispronouncing her name, I know. Created a, a send coffee or tea set during her artist in residency program. And she played a little pun there because send apparently means breast or a windblown sail. So she was kind of incorporating all of that into hers. And it has uh, all these different parts to it. And so that was in 2009 and 10. And then my favorite one, which isn't really an edible thing, but it's related to the whole thing, is this. So I'm going to show you a close-up of her collar here. This was designed in 2011 by a corset maker, Hubert Barrère, designed a dress for Maison Perriezen using Sèvres porcelain. So once again, it's still Sèvres, 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 and more Sèvres. It's modeled after the culture of the 14th and 15th century, century yet it's supposedly echoing uh, Marie Antoinette's. It's a little, a little radical for some, but this is a detail of the, the collar for the outfit. And it's actually based on a, it has a whole, the name of the dress has a thing, it, there's drawings of it which are pretty remarkable. And it's been, uh, uh, it's been said that it's a reinterpretation of this painting this is all art. I have a PhD in art history, and this is, they don't teach me that in art history, I'm telling you. Nothing about food or anything much, uh, except in still lifes and things. Um, but then again, to bring it up to date, in the early 19th century, uh, Josephine Bonaparte, who was Napoleon's bride, she wanted uh, Seb to recreate an updated version of it using the original molds. And so these are now things you could go on the internet and purchase. Last time I checked, um, they were reissued in a limited edition of 30 annually with 24 karat gold on some and the goat heads and hooves uh, cost about 22.50 for one of them. Or if you want to just get the plain old cup yourself, it's uh, much cheaper. And then um, I found, um, I gave this talk to some contemporary ceramics maker in 2015, Suzanne Wolf, who's an artist who lives in Hawaii, she did an updated version. So this is a topic that still interests contemporary artists. And then I'm not leaving the breast for one more minute to do with dinnerware before I show. Um, I was doing an, an exhibition in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is kind of a suburb of Ann Arbor. And I was at this place called the Ladies Literary Club where they had these curios in a cabinet as you walked in the door. And I was looking at this Rosenthal piece and I had them unlock the case. They had taken, this would have been a woman in the late 1800s, 19, turn of the century, who was the de decorator who took the shape of that picture and made woman's breasts out of the shape of the picture, which I thought was a really interesting thing and warranted having a snapshot taken of it. Um, because to me, that's like a curie. I've never seen that of all the things I've looked at where somebody actually paid attention to an anatomical thing to do with a, a picture. Um, 
And then we're going to jump to Wedgwood for a moment. And there's nothing too weird about the Wedgwood set I'm showing here, except for Wedgwood's been around. I don't, in general, anybody here collect Wedgwood? Good, then I'll disparage Wedgwood for a moment. It's not my favorite thing when it comes to dinnerware. In fact, I was invited to give a talk at the International Symposium, like the 60th one in Birmingham, Alabama, where they have a huge, huge, huge Wedgwood collection. And I thought, how am I going to talk about Wedgwood to all these people that know every little passionate thing about Wedgwood, like you know about pies, Kathy? That, yeah. Uh, how am I going to talk to these people about, and I don't have a passion for their Wedgwood, so I went through like everything I could find on Wedgwood, and I'll show you in a moment, I found something that you will love that's Wedgwood, because I've, it's my passion for Wedgwood. But this one I love, because this is the frog service, it was done in the 18th century, there's more than a thousand pieces, each individually painted, these aren't decals that they smack on, so the set, it was owned by Catherine the Great too, it wasn't some Joe Blow that had this Wedgwood stuff. So between 1773 and 74, Catherine the Great commissioned this set. It's one set called the Frog Service, 1,244 different hand-painted views of the British Isles. I didn't even know there were that many, you know, killer things in the British Isles. And 952 different pieces. So to me, that's an anomaly because who the, who the heck does that? Um, but I didn't really love... I mean, if someone offered me this for the collection or a piece of it, I'd be thrilled, okay, because of the history of it. But um, I didn't fall in love till I saw these. These are our game pie dishes from uh, dating beginning around 1795. This, and I love a story to do with dinnerware. The story here is this is during a flour shortage um, because of the uh, Napoleonic Wars, and so. Even the wealthy people had no flowers. So what does Josiah Wedgwood come up with, with, with this kick-ass idea of, of having a game pie dish that looked like a pastry? So it's called caneware. It looks identical. I, went, I finally bought one, which I'll show you in a minute. Anyway, it looks exactly like it has a, it's a pastry, but um, this is the one that my museum owns. And it's got the, the great bunny finial on the top of it. And it's, uh, it just looks like dough, you know, barely baked. You open it up and there's a, a ceramic line or you can put a cheap stew that probably has no flour and might not ha even have a pheasant or something in it. But, so I love that whole concept that it was kind of like faux dinnerware. It looked like food. I loved fake food things that are cool and it's dinnerware. But then I found there was something even better than that, which I don't own and probably will never get one because there are hardly any of them. And that's these things, and they're called conceits. And I borrowed one from their museum for a show I did a couple of years ago, an invitational juried and vintage cake show, cake stands and faux cake things that artists made. Um, and I bar borrowed one of these. What is great about these, which are also done in uh, kind of, uh, it's not really, it looks like Jasperware, but it's more the caneware thing. It looks like finger, uh, lady fingers all up with the icing and stuff. The beauty of this is at least the game pie dish was a functional thing. This has no function whatsoever except to sit on your freaking table making you look like you could have a cake when there wasn't any flour to be had. And I love that, what a genius idea, and there's so few of these that when they go up for sale, I've, I've never seen one go up for sale, but when I go back and look at old auction histories, you know, I'll get my new building before I'll get one of these, but I do love them, and now I can say I love something about Wedgwood. Um, Okay, so um, one more. This one's a test, but you all might know this. What is this? 
This is Wedgwood. I don't love it for its aesthetic, but I love it for its function. This is what it looks like closed. And then these are clues about it. And then I'm going to show it open. It's little, a little thing. Has those, those are ceramic spikes in it. Oh, I love that idea. No, no, that would break the spikes. They're just ceramic there. It's an egg beater. Yep, you shake it. So anyway, I'd never heard of that before. So I, I love that for its idea, um, not for its aesthetic, but, um, and I borrowed that for the exhibit we did because I figured you put eggs in a cake, so it goes with my cake show. And then um, Minton came up with this crazy idea, and so this is where I get into like the weird stuff. Like the caneware is kind of weird. It's really rare and, and has a interesting history. But some of the other companies in, in, in uh, England and other places did funny takeoffs, and usually the, the decorations on the top are kind of outrageous, and they show probably what they thought was going to, you know, rabbit stew or something. So this is in the 1800s, and... This is, it leads me right into soup terrines, which I think are related to game pie dishes and that kind of thing. This is a really beautiful set that my old museum in Alfred, New York, the Ceramics Museum has, made by a, a potter named Val Cushing. And that's to show you the contrast between, this is one of my favorite things. I either like little plain, kind of Scandinavian fine lines and all that, or I like just encrusted, you know, just crazy with uh, decorations and things. And this is a piece um, which comes with a whole set. It's called the Snowball Service, created at Meissen uh, between 1815 and 1860. And uh, that is the, the soup terrine, which is pretty crazy. But the vases and stuff, they're all encrusted with these little fussy-ass flowers and, and things all over them. Um, I'll probably never get any of that either. Um, but Minton did their own idea for a soup terrine. And I think these are great. This kind of thing where you know what's supposed to go in it, and it's sort of off the deep end of decoration and aesthetic and what's a good, sensible idea for something. And I was telling Kathy when we were coming over, I think you all know about Zingerman's in Ann Arbor. Well, Ari Weinswag, one of the co-founders, is now on my board, and he asked me, I'm a vegetarian, he asked me, uh, which is an anathema to most of Zingerman's or people that eat good food, I guess, but um, he asked me if I would give a talk to their program they have on June 1st every year called Camp Bacon, and bacon isn't something I really think about much, but when he asked me, it, I, he said, well, you know, like, to do with dinnerware, so I've now got this whole talk, which is quite hilarious, to do with um, the pig and dining, and this is one of the images. Uh, Mike Minton isn't the only one that made weird, uh, weird, uh, terrines and stuff. This is a Wedgwood terrine, which I think is in uh, bad taste and all that, but I think it's off the charts for what an anomaly uh, and curiosity of dinnerware might be. This one is um, Mackenzie Childs, which is in upstate New York, and they do pretty outrageous stuff. This uh, pretty much bad taste, but it's got a ladle and everything with it. But it leads me to this one I found years ago, because I used to teach ceramic world history, and I do like 10,000 years of ceramic history from all countries. I found this, and I thought when I looked at it, it was a soup terrine, because it must be. And it turns out Augustus the Strong had this as a, it was a butter dish. I've not seen it in person. 
I don't think I know the exact dimensions, but I'm guessing it isn't enormous, um, but it's a butter dish. So sometimes things are misleading what they look like they could serve. Um, but even that, butter dish or soup terrine, I think it's, it's pretty strange. Um, but that leads me to my favorite uh, turtle-related thing. Oh, not this one. No, this one's good, but um, teapots are all the rage. This is my, my favorite turtle-related thing, and it looks like just a plain old piece of Haviland china. And, um, and I tell people now, because we're kind of out of space for taking things in the collection, that I don't want grandma's dishes. This could be grandma's. I want this one, OK? I'll show you why in a minute. But I don't want grandma's dishes unless grandma ate off of Sev or Mycin or some you know, high-end royal stuff, because I don't need any more grandma's dishes right now. This piece, um, I used to, uh, I wrote a book about lithophanes. You know about lithophanes? They were done in the 19th century, uh, about the time photography was invented and stuff in the 1820s. And there are porcelain plaques that have to be backlit, so it's before electricity, and you had like fireplace things and natural light and candles and stuff like that. So there are things that you use to protect your eyes from the flames flickering and things, but they were beautifully carved. One, Meissen did them, and um, I don't, Sev, I maybe did a couple, but, but anyway, this thing reminds me of it because if you go back and you look at him, look for turtle parts sticking out. If you back, I don't know why anybody would backlight the protruding part of a Haviland soup bowl. I don't know why. Um, but there's, so it's like an x-ray kind of. It's a really weird thing. Anyway, I, I can't find one of these. I saw one ever that had been sold on uh, the internet. But I just what a genius idea to hide like a secret thing in a, in a dish. So if anybody sees one of these someplace, I now pick up Haviland to make sure it isn't a turtle-shaped thing, you know, camouflaged. Um, another thing that has lithophanes in it that's dining-related are beer steins, and I'm not a beer person, per se. So, but now I pick up all beer steins because I want to see if there's a lithophane in the bottom. So when you're dead drunk and you're draining your beer, in the bottom is a lithophane usually related to drinking or whatever the subject matter is. So this one, which I love, the nun, in the bottom of the nun is um, um, uh, Girta. So this is from Reinecke Fuchs or Reynard the Fox, that whole story. So where the fox is choking this prayer, this little choir boy bunny. Um, so that's in the bottom of the nun, Bierstein. So I love that they put something amusing in the bottom of, of a drinking thing. Um, and then this is actually the lithophane that's based on the engravings. These are old engravings of Girta. And then contemporary artists are doing the same thing. So these are two artists that teach at the University of Cincinnati, um, Katie Parker and uh, Guy Michael Davis. And they came up with the idea of making, they were in Jingdejun at, uh, doing a residency, and they took these lithophanes that, um, I had them as students at, when I taught someplace, and uh, so they got hooked on lithophanes. And so they took lithophanes over to China with them that they had made, and they put them on the bottoms of these cylinder cups that they made. So one was a monkey, but they put Chairman Mao on the bottom of one of their cups, too. So I thought that was like a cool, up-to-date idea for, uh, though now it should be uh, Xi Jinping or whatever his name is, who's ever leader there now. But I like when people take old traditions. This is another thing which I think fits under anomalies and curiosities that the same, the same couple did. Um, I did a show about uh, dining. Back in the, between the 30s and the 70s, people used to, women largely, used to 
sit, you know, with these little trays on their laps, and they had an indented place and you, uh, for your beverage or your soup, and then, and so I was really into that whole thing, and if they had a place for your cigarette, I was even happier, because that you're trying to get your smoke really near your sandwich, and, and all that. Well, I didn't tell them they could, could or couldn't do smoking things, but this is what that same couple who did the lithobanes came up with, um, which is called a rat snack set. So, um, Mike, he likes to take dead things and make plaster casts of them. Like I have a clothes hook in my kitchen that's a baby possum that's, that's upside down and it holds my aprons in my kitchen. Um, but it's covered in celadon, like a wonderful Chinese glaze on it. So you look at it and it's kind of like, ooh, oh, ooh, oh. You know, you can't decide if you hate it or you, you love it, but that's how, so the rats don't come off there. So you could like serve cheese and crackers on it with your, your beverage or something, but I think that fits. And then if you get a chance and the weather clears and stuff and get to get out to Navy Pier to see our show, which is uh, Timeless Dinnerware Design, um, this is a piece that's in that exhibit. It's the only one of these in the entire world, and I know that because the guy that, um, Ted Rada, who designed it in 1971 at Corning, um, he has the only one. Corning doesn't even have one, and we're not telling them that we have it right now. Um, but it's a photosensitive glass plate, and from a dining standpoint, it's the most awesome idea except for Corning didn't do it because it was cost prohibitive to actually make these photosensitive glass plates, at least in 1971. So the idea is that you have this plate and instead of having to change your dinner where I keep meeting people, I've got 12 sets of this and i got, you know, all these things. Well, instead of that, you change your placemat under it or your tablecloth and you've got every, every single thing looks, and I'm only showing you a couple of them, but that's the same plate, and it's just, it's a really fabulous idea. And I think food, I mean, I don't ever look at dinnerware without thinking, like, well, what would look good on that, you know? Or what wouldn't look good on that? Um, like, I've got a lot of Russell Wright pink plastic dinnerware that's really awesome shapes and things. Um, my husband doesn't like to eat off of pink. For some reason, he doesn't think food looks so good on pink. <laughs> But, um, but anyway, I think this is a really wonderful idea. And then there's a lot of artists over the years who have used the plate as a, a canvas, a blank canvas to do things. And uh, one of the most famous people that's done that is this Howard Kotler guy. Uh, he was a, a gay guy who, back when it wasn't really in vogue to be gay, he died in 1989, so it really wasn't in vogue yet to, to have any of that come out. So he did kind of things that, that promoted gay, the gay lifestyle or made fun of people that didn't understand what he was trying to get at. But they're, they're basically, it's the anti the artist making an individual thing. He took like blanks that were from a factory and then he made, it took commercial decals and then he played the heck out of them and he, he did um, uh, kind of bizarre stuff with them. So like putting um, uh, Blue Boy's head on both Pinky and, and Blue Boy and, um, and then he loved the, um, well, you see the titles, Silent White Majority and stuff. He loved like um, uh, cultural icons and he loved doing something with those. So we had the, the, denti the dentist with the dentist and, um, and then he did all kinds of political things. And ones I borrowed for a show we did uh, called um, Unforgettable Dinner where I borrowed from this place uh, near Detroit. 
um, because I don't own any Kotler plates, but he did the series called The Lost Supper as opposed to the, the Last Supper. I swear, we had a whole series of them lined up, and people didn't, I thought one person who came to the exhibit got it, you know, who, who was, and they should have been upset by it, because if you're at all religious, a lot of his work is offensive and, and all of that. But um, anyway, he's someone who definitely fits into uh, to anomalies and curiosities of, of dinnerware. So store-bought store things, and then he does, like, wordplay with things. Um, and then... Paul Scott's an English artist who's uh, very well known now. And what he does is take blue transferware, which we've all seen and many of us have used, and he puts something that's contemporary in it. And you don't, it's like you look at it and your eyes kind of, oh, that's blue trans, and then you see it that he'll put like a, one of those wind turbines or something in some pastoral scene with cows in it or something. It takes you a moment to realize that that he's playing with you in, in his uh, various formats. Another person who does this is um, this Finnish artist, uh, Carlene Slate, and she does this where she's manipulating and carving out images, so it's stacks of plates with certain things revealed. Um, very interesting thing. So they're taking basically found materials and doing something with that. And in my collection, we have work by uh, this uh, Michelle Taylor who deconstructs plates. She sandblasts uh, plates, so she takes off the pattern that are recognizable things by like Johnson Brothers, all these factories that have closed in England that were you know, famous at one time. And then to talk about the loss of them, she's reconstructing them by taking fabric and printing the original pattern back on the fabric and embroidering or beginning to embroider that pattern. So it's like deconstructing and re reconstructing uh, to do with the losses of the dinnerware industry and things. Just kind of very interesting things people do. Other people who have, and that's a cup that she did. I don't own that one. Uh, another thing people are doing are taking interesting things that already exist as found objects. And this was actually, the teacup bra was created, and I, I somehow didn't manage to record who did it, but it was a benefit for breast cancer research. This one I love. This was on uh, exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art by uh, Li Xiaofeng. It was a couple of years ago. And then a famous person who should come up in culinary historian talks um, is uh, Bernard Palisse, who back in the 16th century did all these cast relief plates that had things he was very interested in nature and so um, and he was also interested in like what how Chinese porcelain came about and he was interested in all sorts of discovery but he used the plate also as a canvas for uh, the creations that he did with all the reptiles and uh, wildlife things that he saw when he was younger and actually, because he was, he was actually a, a thinker and everything, his ideas have mostly been proven true. So not only did he do these these um, uh, plates that are very hard, uh, you know, hard to get, um, but most of his theories on things have come true also. And this is a Wedgwood plate, which doesn't look like anything too spectacular, but um, it, I'd never seen this before. But when I was researching Wedgwood, flip it over. This is probably, you all probably own one of these or something, and I'd never heard of such a weird idea of, um, not a thing of beauty exactly. Okay, so now we're moving into, is there anything even up there? Huh. No, we lost one image, but never mind. It was a bunch of uh, original Fiesta wear. Picture Fiesta wear in all its original colors, not the new stuff. 
Okay, but this one is all the red and orange Fiesta wear. And I brought to, we have some Fiesta wear. I didn't bring all the, this stuff to the conference, or to the Navy Pier. But we have the original six colors and a carafe that's in the uh, uranium glazed orange. And I brought my Geiger counter. So if you come out to Navy Pier, I'll show you how radioactive this is. And I've gotten all of our big collections of of Fiesta wear uh, because people are so paranoid about it. They think, I tell them that the uranium glaze, this was done in 1936. Uh, Homer Lachlan knew what the glaze was because in 1942, they no longer made this glaze because they needed the uranium for the atom bomb. Okay, they knew what their glaze was. You can't get this color without the uranium, but it is so active that if you love Fiesta wear, you still shouldn't use this to have your soup or your coffee or your orange juice because it's, it's, it makes the Geiger counter go insane. Like if you take a piece of uranium glass, it re the Geiger counter goes off, okay? But if you take the uranium glaze Fiesta wear, it goes nuts. None of the rest of the original colors, they're all fine. Nothing, and of course, it's nothing harmless. You can, you know, they don't even have lead in glazes anymore. Um, but it's a cautionary tale, and it's one of the few things you can do with dinnerware that's kind of like a dog and pony thing, where you can say, "Hey, look what look what this stuff can do." Um, but I do love how the radioactive, the uranium Vaseline glass, whatever you want to call it, how it looks on, you know, a cake stand when it's black, light lit. Or an ashtray. There's your like double whammy. You got the smoking part, and then you got the radioactive ashtray. So that one's in my my. Actually, all of those things are in my collection. Um, and but it has given me lots of uh, wonderful, wonderful things because people are afraid of it. So speaking of radioactivity and dining, um, there's this gentleman in Germany named Nils Ferber. After the Fukushima disaster, he came up with this prototype idea of Fukushima ware which is uh, ceramics which will let you decide what level of radioactivity you will accept in your food. So the plates have banding on them, and the bands light up based on how radioactive your sushi is. So you get to decide what is okay for you. Um, and then he has like a diagram that shows how it goes together and how the banding flips off so you can put it in the dishwasher. I emailed him because this is, I don't have this wear down because it's just a prototype. One, I don't think it works. It's a design idea, which is really great. So I have this down at Navy Pier uh, because I love the idea that somebody came up with a concept even though to my knowledge, definitely, he doesn't even have it on his website anymore, I don't think, uh, for proto, but I like prototypes of things that are possibilities. We have a bunch of prototypes down at Navy Pier. Um, so I have to mention, for people, you must know about Rosanjin, who was like one of the most famous Japanese epicure people. He started making ceramic dinnerware um, because he wanted the right food to eat his exquisite cuisine from. So, and he was offered the National Living Treasure thing in Japan. He didn't accept it because he wasn't the first person to ever be offered it. He insulted everyone on earth. He was a, um, a Picasso, people he met and talked to and um, thought he was going to cook for them. And I mean, he was a, a 
the books on Rosanjan are amazing. So I, I tell you to investigate him and his cooking. He had restaurants. There's still restaurants called Rosanjan, maybe even one in New York. Um, anyway, he was an amazing person. He did one world trip when he was was elderly. He never left Japan otherwise, but he went to, he had a show at the Museum of Modern Art. He went to Rome. He went to Alfred, New York. That's how I learned about him because even though it was uh, way before my time, he, um, all the stories followed about his food and his dishes, some of them look like nothing. A graduate student, when he was showing people his work, they were like, oh, we, we could make that. It looked like a slab or something. He put it under water. So some Japanese dishes have to have the, the, the um, serving piece wet and then that's when the food that's what it's supposed to be, but this student didn't know that, of course, and sure, they could make a platter, but it wouldn't do what that one did when they, when they put it under water. Anyway, he's a, a marvelous person um, from a culinary uh, idea and his, his dinnerware. So other people that I think made um, weird things to do with dining and stuff are Georgie Orr, who's otherwise known as the Mad Potter of Biloxi, who supposedly went in, he usually showed with these pictures with his mustache out to the moon. And um, this is a puzzle mug. So yes, you can drink out of it if you know how it works. Um, but he's famous for these. And there, there's a George E. Orr Museum. I think it's in, uh, it's in the South someplace. I'm sorry, I don't remember where it is. but. Um, Anyway, his work is really interesting, and he does, uh, uh, he did, he's dead, of course, but he did all kinds of things. Another person who, um, because I look at things that are not functional necessarily, this one is Klaus Oldenburg, who I think is now like 88 years old. This is in, in MoMA, and um, this one doesn't qualify as dinnerware because it doesn't have a plate under it, okay? But he did do ones that I do qualify as dinnerware that are faux food, plaster things that look like cakes and things. This one he did for a friend who was a curator's wedding in 1966. He made eight cakes, here he is with some of his cakes, which were on plates, um, with 18 slices each. And then I looked up prices, so in 2012, one slice of his cake that didn't have the plate under it sold for $8,125. So I think the people that attended this wedding, I hope they held on to their, their party favor from, um, and they're really, they're really beautiful. They're, they're actually little works of art, but, um, but my favorite one of contemporary artists making things is a student I had at Alfred in my ceramic history class named Dirk, Dirk Stotschke. He did this piece, um, confectionery facade, which I saw in a show in uh, Belleville, Washington, Bellevue, excuse me, Washington, a few years ago, and I fell in love with the thing. Um, my museum was barely, barely wet. This is eight feet tall. It's all faux cake things that are ceramic and plaster and wooden table. That's the front view. That's the side view. It's about eight inches deep. So it looks like this huge thing. So it's a facade, a confectionery facade. That's the back of it because he has to have a way to like put it together to, to move it and things. Somebody bought it. He wanted like $60,000. That wasn't in my charts that I was gonna own that, but I do love, I do love that. And he did this one, um, Let Them Eat Cake. That's everybody's favorite title for a work of art that has a cake in it. Um, that's all faux cake things, it's a wall piece.
and then related to things to do with um, outrageous dinnerware sets. So there's uh, Obama at um, the APEC in 2014 in Beijing, where a Beijing company created these kind of over-the-top imperial yellow dinnerware pieces. So these were given to all the people who attended the conference, and the wives were given these dinnerware sets. Um, I wish I'd been invited to, <laughs> to go to that. Um, and then going back to Marie Antoinette, as I, I wrap it up here in a couple minutes. Um, so her breast cup with Louis XVI and all that. So before Louis XVI, Louis XV had a mistress, which you've all heard about, named uh, Madame de Pompadour there. She was also a patron of Sevres, and uh, the Pompadour Pink, which is in lots of dinnerware sets, was uh, created in her, named in her honor. But a contemporary artist, uh, this is from 1990, uh, a, a photographer named Cindy Sherman did these um, pieces at Limoges, 21-piece set. This one I bought when I was at Alfred and ran the ceramics museum there uh, with her own image. So she's Madame de Pompadour, her own image, and she's dressed as her. Um, so Cindy Sherman's on her own self-portrait here. Uh, apparently it takes like 16 photo silk screens to produce them. They were done in like four different colors. I don't know if I, yeah, I did bring them. I would love to acquire one of these. They're very expensive. Not as bad as Dirk Stotchke's confectionery facade, but, um, but I don't yet have that. So then we come up to Judy Chicago. Um, there's been, I can't think, maybe 100 books written about Judy Chicago and the dinner party from 74 to 79. It's at the uh, Elizabeth Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum. Now, I've not seen it in person ever, but I've, I've seen millions of pictures of it. Basically, it's this triangular table with 39 place settings. There's ceramic, porcelain, and textiles. They're commemorating important women in history. They're all vulvar shapes and butterfly forms. Get a little closer here. Um, all appropriate to whatever woman is being honored in them. And there's 999 other women that are inscribed in gold on the tile floor underneath the table. Um, it's on my bucket list to actually see this in person. Okay, and then we're up to um, whose dishes would you celebrate the happening with in 1966? And the answer would be Roy Lichtenstein. Um, these you will see at Navy Pier if you come to our show because they're a promise gift by uh, some two artists in Ann Arbor that donated them in uh, 20, or almost quasi-donated them, promised them in 2013, and we've been using them ever since. Um, so uh, Roy Lichtenstein, the pop art artist, uh, learned everything he knew from an artist named Hui Ka Kwong, who went to school at Alfred and then taught at Rutgers for 40 years. And he did these designs, the detail of the cups, they're really wonderful. They're, they're also blanks that are done by Jackson China, so he didn't make the plates, but he did the decoration, um, the uh, screen printing uh, for the pieces. And I'm not going to tell you what they're worth because we're not allowed to talk about values of that, but I can tell you that a couple of years ago I bought the ad. They sold in 1966 for 50 bucks in Art in America. They advertised you could buy that place setting, and there were only 800 of them made, so that would have been a deal if we'd all thought about that back then um, instead of whatever we were doing in 1966. Um, 
but I paid almost $50 to buy the original ad out of Art in America off of eBay a few years ago so I could have that since we had dinner roast set. So that tells you like proportionally what it is. This is another set, we don't own this one, but this sculptural set of Roy Lichtenstein called Ceramic Sculpture 13 from 1965. One of these sold for $461,000 at Christie's a few years ago. So um, Roy, Roy takes top dollar. So collecting dinnerware for me doesn't mean just functional things. This is wire scribble sculpture, so it may look like a drawing, but it's actual wire sculpture that a, an artist in Portugal named David Oliveira um, makes and I saw this on Facebook and because it was dinnerware related normally his work has to do with he's done the Pieta and, and animals and human anatomy and all kinds of things um, but the dinnerware thing has fantastic it's all European kind of food it's salads we don't have and stuff but this is probably we had this at Navy Pier when we did a show in, here in 2013 and I think it was everybody's favorite thing. The children loved it, and people were guessing what the things were. Though the worst one was in Ann Arbor. I had this in an exhibit. And this guy who literally had no way to abstract something in his brain looked at it, and there's a, is it in here? There's one part of it that has a, like a cutting utensil in the turkey or chicken or whichever one it is. He thought it was a fly swatter and I'm thinking, well, why would you put a fly swatter in a cart, you know? Um, but anyway, so he's the only one who like didn't really have fun with it. Um, but it's a, a a very interesting artist. So when I'm going out and about, I look at like people's dinnerware that maybe nobody else would pay attention to. So this is a Wedgwood thing I saw when I was walking around the Birmingham Museum of Art a few years ago. Back when I did that talk about. Wedgwood and stuff. Um, but I loved how they made the swan go with the form. And um, to me, like aesthetically, I don't like it, but I like that they did it. Um, but aesthetically, I love this. this. These are really rare. My husband and I would love to have, we've always wanted one of these. So these were done uh, for just a couple of years in the 1890s at Knowles Taylor Knowles in East Liverpool, Ohio. It's called the Etruscan Ewer. And then another artist, um, a Dutch artist, uh, Boke uh, de Vries did this uh, Worcester Memory Vessels group and he plays with forms and then uh, found objects and things. And then because I'm into dinnerware, I like to look at things that look like dinnerware but they're not quite dinnerware. So the gravy boat, which is a simple concept, but there are things that you probably know about that look like gravy boats that I didn't know about. But the guy that founded the Lithophane Museum in Toledo, Ohio, which is the largest collection, even though it's European in the whole world, um, but it's in Toledo, um, he collected not this. This is a nice mice and gravy boat. He collected this. Have you know about these? So these things that look like gravy boats, but they're not, these bordelos, they're, they're uh, another word would be chamber pot. Okay, so I got one of somebody using one. Anyway, he this guy was obsessed with lithophanes and bordelos. <laughs> so, and people all thought he collected gravy boats. <laughs> but it, it amused me enough that I think like the comparison is interesting, you know, because it's not. Um, and this is one made out of slipcast silicon carbide, which is something you put on shelves for high-fired ceramics or something. It's, it's a really beautiful, it looks like Dorothy's ruby slippers or something, except for it's all glittery. So this company made one kind of that showed that they could do it out of a gravy bolt mold. 
Um, but cool things. And so another thing, this is, an, this is an anomaly because I think it's really beautiful. So something that's really a masterpiece can be an anomaly because it's an outstanding example. So this is in our, our collection, and we did show this at Navy Pier um, in 2013 by this artist, Kate Maury, who teaches at University of Wisconsin Stout. And then this is another piece that she did. And they're just beautiful celadon glazed um, centerpieces, but... Um, but don't have any upsetting aspect like a, a bordelot. Um, and then a couple of more things, and then I'm wrapping up here. Oh, sugar sculpture, something which I'm sure you all know about. And unfortunately, I joined the culinary historians of Ann Arbor after they'd already had Ian, Ivan, okay, after he'd already spoken to the group and stuff. But, um, but I'm really interested in sugar sculpture, and um, so this is from an exhibit. And I, tr I contacted the... Uh, what used to be the American Craft Museum, um, because I know I saw a sugar sculpture of a contemporary artist do one back in like the 70s or something that was on exhibit. They have no like record that they ever had. It was just killer, and I'd never heard of such a thing. Um, but they, they really, it was a contemporary version on it. Um, this is a piece that's out at Navy Pier right now, and this is an artist. Uh, uh, an artist who designed things. This, he designed this, I bought it in 1990, but he's still doing the same thing and he'd made it even before that. So he's been doing the same thing for like 30 years. And I'm not an indecisive person, but I saw this in Portland, Oregon at a craft shop and they had it in white and they had it in black. And I stood there for like an hour going, I love the black one. I love the white one. I could only afford one of them. And it was way before the dinnerware museum. I just wanted to own it. I could not make up my mind finally about the black one. But the the white one, I, I, I like the original Star Trek, so I didn't watch this version, um, but this is the white one on Star Trek, so it's now called Captain Picard's tea set by some people, um, and now I kind of want to buy the white one because, um, but mine's older than, well, not as old as, no, Star Trek's in the future, isn't it, so maybe it's... <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, but what's cool about it is that the cups and everything nest under it, so you can pick up the entire... You can pick up the teapot without disturbing the cups, or you can remove the cups. It's like a mother hen, kind of. So it's a really awesome, um, but nobody else does it, so anomalous thing. And if I were him, he makes a bunch of other stuff, which isn't so interesting. And I would just sell this. If, I, if it was me, they got the sure thing, just run with it, tell everyone in the universe owns one of them. Um, but he, and he just does black and white ones. But anyway, Sanger porcelain. And then, um, not to be outdone by showing a couple more tea things, it, this Meissen set, which I don't own. Um, but I think that's like killer because it's really like overdone, but it would be fun to have it and you know, imagine, or actually it would be fun to imagine because I wouldn't be using it because it would be accessioned. Um, and then the, there's a few more weird uh, teapot things that I, I'm thinking, what were they smoking when they you know, came up with that as a, a great idea for a teapot? And then monkeys, that's like, I love monkeys, but that, um, and these weren't made like yesterday. Some of them are so kind of fresh ideas that you think, well, some contemporary artist came up with that. But Meissen had like a, a zillion versions on the monkey and how it could be configured and pour tea and all of that. And then one of my favorite artists in Canada, in uh, Montreal, is uh, Leopold Foulam. And he does uh, these teapot forms that look like teapots, but they're not functional, so they're not pots about pots, they're really abstractions of objects. So what he says is he's not concerned about the real thing, he's concerned with the idea of the real thing. Um, this one's based on like Japanese Amari, 
this one we own in my collection, so I've been able to take it off. So when it's under a vitrine and nobody can touch it, they don't get it. They just think it's a blue willow-ish thing. But he takes found objects. All the metal things are like when I go antiquing with him in, in uh, Amsterdam or something, he's buying armature and then getting it redone. And then he's working his work around whatever that found object is. So this one, it's a solid block. So if you take the lid off, it's a solid ceramic block. It's not, nothing functional. It's about the idea of the, of the teapot. Which brings me back to, we're almost wrapping it up here, brings me back to, if you think of Leopold Fulem and his abstractions, you have to think about Brancusi and his famous, this cup, which uh, obviously I'll never have one of, but would like one of, um, which leads me to, um, this is an Eva Zeisel, uh, just a beautiful Hallcraft cup that she did in the 50s for Hall China. Which brings me to the piece I'd really, if somebody said you can have one thing, you can just pick it out of somebody else's collection, take it back to Ann Arbor, and um, that would be Merritt Oppenheim's fur line cup and saucer. So I didn't realize there was such a good story, but um, Merritt is a woman, just to tell you that. She was actually the first, in 1946, she was the first female artist to enter the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, which, you know, coup for her, that was this. Uh, this was created in 1936, and she did not like being called a surrealist, so that put her with, um, um, well, everybody, I'm thinking all the surrealists, um, uh, Magritte and Dolly and Max Ernst and Man Ray and, and whatnot. She didn't like any of that. She didn't like being considered a woman artist or a female artist because she thought art was androgynous, which I think is a, you know, what a good, I mean, and she was like 23 when she did this. This was done after a luncheon she had with Picasso and Dora Maar. Picasso commented on a bracelet she had that had like a fur lining under it. And, um, and Picasso said, well, you could, um, he said anything could be covered with fur. And she pointed to the cup and saucer. She said, even this cup and saucer or something. And she went out, bought a, you know, a blank from someplace and, and got the gazette, Chinese gazelle fur and, uh, and then titled it objet. And um, so it's like a, an iconic thing. Um, anyway, the, the cool thing is like we think of teacups and all that as like a civilized thing. It's got a formal situation and stuff. But the idea of having wet fur in your mouth is like a disgusting. So it's like this wonderful, anyway, it's my, my favorite uh, dinnerware art thing, um, especially from a 23, but, but not better than this, but one I'd never seen before. Now that's more pictures of the same one. It's this one. This one really hits my culinary button for, so she did this one, my nurse, same time period. So this just calls up everything to me. Um, and I think MoMA owns this one, but same year. She's still 23 years old. She's still into art is androgynous. Okay, so. Wrapping it up. So a couple of dinner parties, and you probably know all these things I'm going to tell you about, but the famous tea party thing, okay, and I just like this picture, so um, so that's why we're doing Alice's tea party. Okay, so this one, so there's, this one's a quiz, and you probably are the only people on earth who will get this. No pressure. Okay, so this is a real photograph. So that date, I want you to date it and say where it is and who was at it. Um, 
Do I give any info? Oh, I have it right in front of me. Okay, so these are real people. So it was after in photography was invented. Okay, and so here's some statistics from it. No, that'll give you the answer. I don't want to give you the answer. Anyway, it looks large, doesn't it? So think of like the, did I not give a? So where would you be able to put um, a table that was seven miles long? And I don't know why these things aren't on here, but. Um, an idea. They'd have to restore more of it, I think, to, to get it. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a clue. It was on September 22nd in 1900. There were 22,965 people that attended it, and it was the... So these are, like, real photographs. And what interested me the most about this, I, it's like record-breaking thing for people dining together. So we know that they used 125,000 plates, 55,000 forks. And if I told you that there were 39,000 bottles of wine, you might have guessed France. You know, Maybe not that it was at the Tuileries or something. Um, but what interested me, if you go on the internet and you start researching this banquet of mayors, it's, there's photographs, there's prints of it, um, and I have become obsessed with it. There's the exact menu from what was served. They know what dances were done, the medals that were given, the amounts of wine, champagne. There's drawings of people, more photographs. There's postcards. There's the medals that people got and all this. But the only thing we don't know is who made the dishes, other than I'm guessing they were French, okay? But who made, there's like no record of it. There's no image. This is the most clear image it's like nondescript. So to me, that's like, well, wh how can you know all the cuisine and everything else and who, the names of everybody there? But the thing I learned from, uh, the last thing I'm going to show you is the thing I learned, which I know you know about, because I learned it from Jan Longoni. She did an exhibit, um, when was it? A couple years ago at, at University of Michigan. And um, it was menus and things like that. And uh, they were incredible. And then she gave a talk about it. Well, one of the menus I hadn't looked at carefully enough um, commemorated, okay, we're at a zoo. Ah, yeah. I had never heard of such a thing. So here we are with the Siege of Paris. And I can't find any good images. The best thing I could find was this sad little drawing of Castor and Pollux being shot, that the one that the children ran. But the menu of it, I've had more people enter and say, oh, can you send me a guy? I said, just go on the internet. The menu's out there, where they have all these you know, beautiful names for, for all the, the foods. But when you translate them into English, they don't sound so appetizing. But the fact, and normally, because you already know about this, but I tell the people the statistics about them eating the squirrels and the dogs and the cats and the horses and going down the food chain until they got there. But um, last year when Bill and I were in Paris, we went to, we wanted to go to this exact zoo. I wanted to see the place. And what was really, and we have great photos of it, but what I wanted to see was like what the cages look like and stuff, because everything's old there. Every single cage, nothing, no cage dated until the year after this. They, maybe you've all been to, you had to go see the zoo where they ate all the animals. Nothing there was left. Like, all of it was, it was old, <laughs> but it was all post 
the, the siege of Paris and eating the animals at the zoo, which I just find, um, my French isn't very good, but, but once I read it in English, I was like, oh, okay. So that's my, and I've done this talk to people who don't, aren't culinary historians. They, of course, have never heard of the whole thing. Um, anyway, that's how I'm ending it, on that happy note about <laughs> how they ate the zoo animals. After they ate all the zoo animals. Hmm. Well, that reminds, when I lived in China for a couple of years in the early 80s, and I was astounded at what they did have that we don't have. And then I was astounded at how there was hardly any birds flying around. Like they'd all been captured. <laughs> and they were either in cages, little singing birds that the men took out to walk in the parks and do their Tai Chi with, um, or they had been eaten. So there was like hardly any, I think there was one kind of bird that I saw. Um, but. Otherwise, it looks like not not the regular animals and stuff. And my my I was married um, before Bill. I was married to this Chinese gentleman, and um, and he told me really interesting culinary stories about cuisine in China and what got eaten and things. And we went to their zoo. This. <laughs> I didn't know this other story. We went to the zoo, but I think the same uh, thing befell some of the sad animals in the zoo in the, the capital city I lived in, in Zhengzhou, uh, in Hunan province. Um, and they had things in their zoo that we would eat. They had like a turkey, like our kind of turkey, in the zoo, like it was like a, um, yeah. Yeah, um, and it hadn't been eaten. I was thinking, well, there's the one thing that <laughs> would be gone in a minute, you know. But but most of the other animals were were gone. They either died because of neglect or something, or or they befell the siege of Paris uh, story. But and he used to tell me how they'd name their chickens, you know, and then that that chicken that had a name would it, the chicken lived with them in their apartment, and that chicken would all of a sudden not be there one day, and by golly, they'd be having chicken for, you know, for dinner or something. So things I don't even think about, well, when I don't eat chicken, but, um, um, anyway, so I have one French chef story to tell you, that after I joined the, uh, the culinary historians and everybody else was telling all these stories about all these, you know, famous people they knew, and I don't, know any famous people, but um, I, my first museum job in 1972 was working at Hoover Presidential Library, and the senior archivist there um, was married to the, 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 French, the American French chef um, Richard Olney, and so he thought to show off to me and the curator, I was like 20, early 20s, to show off, he would have Richard Olney when he was in town cook us coco vin. And so made with a chicken instead, uh, Richard only cooked us um, for me and his sister and Dwight and the baby was too little to eat it, the food, um, cooked Coco Vaughn for us. He was so drunk by the time he got done fixing the food, he had passed out on the couch. I don't think I ever got to talk to him. <laughs> he didn't ever sit at the table. Um, and that's my, my touch with um, a famous, famous chef. <laughs> so, anyway, I did eat his food, and at that point I wasn't a vegetarian, and it was excellent. <laughs> Probably better that he was, how insulting to him to make him cook for a couple of your guests, you know, I, I thought. It was gauche even 
back then when I was young. So anyway, thank you very much. And if you want any propaganda to know more about my museum, I did bring 